Our passage for today is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. It's a very familiar passage to all of us, so Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and I'll read it from the English Standard Version. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word that you have given to us and for your son who has made it possible for us today to be to come into your presence and to, and, to, and to come to it as a people of God, to worship you and to praise you and to learn from your word a lot. And as we sit in your presence a lot, we pray that your Holy Spirit will illuminate our hearts and our minds as we look to know more about you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Um, now the American uh, comedian George Burns, I don't know how many of you know him, he once said that the secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending. And to have the two as close together as possible. Um, <clears throat> yeah. There's obviously some truth in that. And we have been discussing over the last two weeks the attributes of God. And last week we were looking at what we call the incommunicable attributes. The attributes like God's sovereignty and his omnipresence. or He's present everywhere. His, his all-powerfulness. His unchangeableness. These are the attributes that we do not have. Therefore, it is not communicated or shared with us, and that's why they are called incommunicable attributes. But today, we are going to look at the communicable attributes, the attributes that can indeed be more um, readily appreciated by us because we also display them in our lives in a limited sense. So what are the, the communicable attributes? Now, traditionally, those are things like God's spirituality, his wisdom, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his love, his beauty, and so on. Now you would see why they are called communicable because these same attributes can be seen and developed in us as human beings. Of course, God is the giver of these attributes and he's the ultimate example of them and we can never hope to attain the level of perfection that he has. But in some sense, we can also replicate or display a tiny percentage of what he has. Indeed, one of the goals of Christian living is to become more like God or specifically more like Jesus by imitating him or imaging him in these attributes. So we are to love like Jesus loves. We are to be holy like God is holy and so on. But I want to focus today on a, on a smaller set or a subset of these attributes. Uh, these are the moral attributes of God. And they are holiness and goodness and love and righteousness 
and so on. Now, there are two reasons why I chose to do so. First, we are familiar with the communicable attributes of God much more than we are with the incommunicable attributes. So I do not have to develop a biblical case for the fact that God is wise or that he's faithful and so on. Those are facts that are impressed in our minds and hearts from a very young uh, age in our Christian journey by the truth of the word and by the facts of our experience. But this is not the case with things like God is present everywhere. Those attributes are more abstract and because they are so removed from our experience and it's easy to misunderstand them and misapply their implications in our lives. But, like I said, from the earliest moments that we are Christians, we have taken hold of the truth that God is love, that God is faithful, and so on. And these are the bedrock of our trust and confidence in Him as we live in this world. But secondly, I also want to focus on these moral attributes because there's a danger that in our familiarity with them, It is easy to bring God down to our level, to make him safe and domesticated. What do I mean by that? Well, here's an example. I know what love is because I love my wife, my children, my parents, my brothers and sisters, my friends, and so on. Now, I know that God is love. Therefore, God is so much better better than me at loving others because he's God. So his love is like a superset of of my love. Sometimes I might fail to love my brother or sister, but God is always loving because he can never stray away from his nature to love. Now that's true, but I do not know if you saw the problem in that description. What is the problem there? The problem there is in the definition of love. Because I'm familiar with the reality of love in my life, I have defined what love is in my own terms. And though I'm saying that God is more perfect at this love than I am, this love is still something I have defined. I have not begun with what God says is true love. So instead of going top down, beginning with God and then applying his definition to my understanding, I have gone bottom up, beginning with my experience and then applying it to God. There is, that is the danger. When we go about thinking about God that way, we do make him safe and simple to understand. And this is a problem that you see in in North American Christianity. Of course God wants me to be happy. Or he loves me no matter what I do or what I do not do for him. Of course he will bless me with the things that I want him because he is good. Because what will I not do for my children? How can God not do so much more? Now I do not want to sound in a flippant, but because there's a sense of truth in some of that. But what we see today in most Christianity is a God who is a mirror reflection of our ideals and our aspirations. What we do not see is a God who was seen by Isaiah. You see, Isaiah thought he knew God and he knew what holiness meant. Or a God who was seen by Hosea or by Jonah or by Paul They thought they knew of God's love, his grace, his mercy, but then they met God and they realized what they knew of him was wrong and that changed their lives. See, God is not safe. He cannot be contained within the boundaries of our experience or understanding. We cannot dictate to him as to what he should or should not do, how he should be holy, 
how he should express his love. We need to meet him on his own terms. And even in the things that we believe we know of God, in his attributes that are shared by us as human beings, we need to first understand how God defines them and let those impact our understanding instead of the other way around. And when we seek to know God and understand him on his terms, we will soon see that the holiness and the love and the goodness of God does three things in our life. It shows us that God is wholly unique and entirely separate from us. Secondly, it convicts us by pointing pointing out our inability to live up to his standards. Thirdly, it transforms us and changes our priorities and our convictions and our motivations. So it shows us that God is wholly unique and entirely separate. It convicts us by pointing out our inability to live up to his standards and it transforms us by changing our priorities and motivations. So we are separated from him. Let us turn our attention back to this passage from Isaiah 6. Now we know who is Isaiah. He was a faithful prophet. He was a holy man of God who courageously went against the evil and wickedness of the people of Judah to bring God's word to them. And he has been preaching to the people regarding God's soon coming judgment on them for their evil deeds. He says, you have to repent of your sins else God is going to judge you. In the year that King Uzziah dies, Isaiah has a vision of God. Uzziah was a good king of Judah. Now, those of us, once again, these are things I feel Sunday school children might know more than we do. Uzziah was a good king who strayed away from God in his final years, and because of that, he was afflicted with leprosy as a punishment, and he was forced to live separately from everyone else. But he was a good king, and he dies. And that was a big deal in Judah, because since Solomon... There had been no other king like Uzziah in Judah. He was an effective administrator. He was an able military leader. Judah had prospered and grown under him. So he was, in all senses, the hope and the savior of the people. Now he has died, and what happens is a foreign country, a foreign power called Assyria, has come knocking at the doors of Jerusalem, ready to trample them to the ground. King Uzziah is dead. Where will the people put their trust and their hope? And in the year that the king dies, Isaiah has a vision of the true king. He knows the king is dead, but he says, my eyes have seen the king. He sees the Lord sitting on his throne. The hem of his robe stretches across the floor of the temple. The seraphim, whose only function was to attend to this glorious king, cannot even look at him. They cover their faces, and they call out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The sound of their hymns, their singing, shakes the foundations of the temple, and it is filled with smoke. So Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 to 16 of the Lord, that he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of lords and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable 
light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is the Lord that Isaiah has a vision of. And he is terrified because he sees the extent of God's holiness. What, is, what does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be separate. To be completely removed from being ordinary. So when we say that God is holy, we usually define it as saying God is entirely separate from sin. But the key is not in the sinlessness part, but in the separateness. His holiness is terrifying because we cannot approach him. He's entirely separate from sin. That means he's entirely separate from us. The psalmist asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? We read about Moses approaching God in the burning bush. And God says, take off your sandals for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. His presence is enough to sanctify even the dust of the ground. And the holiness of God, like all of his other attributes, is not because of what he does, but because of who he is. It is grounded not in his deeds, but in his nature. See, God says, be holy, for I am holy. He does not say, do the things that I do, because the things I do are holy. But he says, be like me, because what I am is holy. Everything I do is holy because of who I am. It is not a choice for God to be holy. But his holiness is the very essence of his nature. That is a holiness that demands respect and reverence. It terrifies us and overwhelms us because the unhidden sight of a pure and holy God is too much for the human senses. See, Moses, if you remember in Exodus chapter 33, he asks to see the glory of God. And God says, that is too much for you. He says, I will hide you in this gap in the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by so that you shall see my back and not my face because you cannot see my face and hope to live. That is the overwhelming, terrifying, glorious holiness of God. Now what about the rest of God's morality, his moral attributes? Can we hope to make sense of those? Can we understand his goodness and how he chooses to parcel out his favor? See, God told Moses in that same incident that we just uh, talked about in Exodus 33, that he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he will be merciful to whom he chooses to be merciful. He is the standard of goodness. When we say God is good, we say he is good because he is the standard, and everything he does is good and worthy of approval. You know, in Psalm 119, we read, You are good and do good. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. But can you put his goodness in a box and say that we have understood it? Why does God make, sun, make the sun rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and the unjust? Where is the logic and the justice in that? Why is God long-suffering and patient when it comes to those who are wicked and rebellious? That is what Jonah wanted to know. See, what did Jonah want to know? He said, why, God, are you giving another chance to Nineveh? Haven't you had enough of their sins? 
Didn't you promise to vanquish them from the face of the earth? Now you want to give them another chance to repent. I thought I had you figured out that I knew how good you were and how merciful you were, and now I realize that I do not know you at all. What does Jonah do? He runs away. What about his love? You know, we read in 1 John that God is love. You know, in the Trinity, there has been and there is perfect love from eternity past. The Father loves the Son, as we read. And that love is something that is so, again, alien to us. You know, the theologians say God's love is God eternally giving of himself to others. God's love is God eternally giving of himself to others. It is not merely the love of relationship obligation. That is our love. Our love is the love of relationship obligation. The relationship comes first. Then we are obliged to love. But that is not God's love. It is God's love is a love that was displayed in the life of Hosea. Now if you know the story of Hosea, let me briefly paraphrase it. You know, God told Hosea, do you want to see how I love my people? Then go marry a woman whose history is filled with unbridled passion and unfaithfulness. Go marry her knowing full well that she will cheat on you. So Hosea goes and marries this woman named Gomer. He's fully devoted to her, but her attention is not exclusive to him. She bears him two children and a third. And the third one's father is not even Hosea. He even knows it. Then she decides that she has had enough of the sham marriage and goes back to her old ways, back to the world. But then the world abuses her and defiles her. And when the world has had enough of her, she's put up for sale in the marketplace like an unwanted bargain. And only one man is ready, is there to pay the price and redeem her back. And that is Hosea. He redeems her for 15 shekels of silver and some barley. He covers her nakedness and soothes her wounds. He brings her back home and says, I'm going to love you like nothing has happened to you, like nothing has happened between us, like the history of your past has been erased. Is there a category for that kind of sacrificial love, of God giving eternally of himself? Then we read in John 3.16 of another expression of his love. He so loved the world that he gave his son to die on the cross so that who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that son in his love for us went to the cross and bore the shame and he died on our behalf. And you know what I find interesting? That a lot of art is influenced by the story of Jesus Christ, by the story of redemption, by the story of sacrifice. But even the greatest of art cannot capture the uniqueness of that kind of sacrificial love. You know, you read books like A Tale of Two Cities. I'm sure many of us have read that. I'm sure many more of us have probably seen uh, The Lord of the Rings. You know, they all have Jesus-like figures, the man or woman who is willing to sacrifice themselves for others. But then the author or the creator cannot bring himself or herself to make that character just like Jesus. You know why? Because that would make no sense in the story. Because people would laugh it off and say that is unrealistic. So the hero dies for his friend or for his loved one. 
or the hero sacrifices himself because in that sacrifice he finds some redemption for his past mistakes. But a perfect hero who dies for someone who is not his friend or cares for him, that is too much for even the most gullible of human imagination. That's why we don't see stories like that or movies like that because we would say that is not true. But then we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners and his enemies, Christ died for us. Can we even begin to understand this God? Can we put him in a box so that he is comprehensible? In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a question that is put up about Aslan, who is the lion, who is the Christ figure in that world. And the question is, is he safe? I believe it's uh, someone asks it to the beaver. He asks him, Aslan, is he safe? And the answer is, of course, he's not safe. But he's good. And he's the king. Isaiah saw this king and he's convicted in his presence. When Isaiah saw God in the splendor of his holiness, he's awestruck and he's dumbfounded. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, woe is me, for my eyes have seen the king. Now we have all read this passage and we have heard it being preached on. And usually how we explain this goes something like this. Isaiah saw the holiness of God and became so aware of his sin that he pronounces himself unclean and he repents from his sin and that repentance is confirmed by the burning coal from the altar that is placed on his lips in verses verses, uh, 6 and 7. Now there's nothing wrong with that explanation but it kind of misses the point in the context of Isaiah. See, before chapter 6, What comes? Five more, five previous chapters. So before chapter six comes five chapters. And if you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, it's full of his prophecies, which are full of judgment and condemnation and calls to repentance. There is no hint that Isaiah himself was sinful, that he himself partook of the sins of the people, that he was part of that. In fact, he set himself apart. He was holy in that scenario. And if you read chapter 5, from verse 8 onwards to the end of chapter 5, he pronounces a series of woes. He says, woe to you the rich. He says, woe to you the wicked. He says, woe to you the pleasure seeker. He says, woe to you the liar, the perverse evildoer, the unjust judge who deprives the poor and acutes the guilty. But then he sees God in his holiness and he says, woe is me. He says, my lips are unclean. Why the lips? Because he's a prophet. What is the prophet's bread and butter? His words. His lips. So this, is this a holy man repenting of his sin? What sin did he do? No, we miss the point if our explanation is so simplistic. I first um, kind of heard this in a sermon by Tim Keller, who himself 
you know, took it from an old preacher called George Whitefield. See, Isaiah was not repenting of his sin. He was repenting of his righteousness. He was not repenting of his sin. He was repenting of his righteousness. What do I mean by that? He was saying, I thought I knew what holiness was, what being good was, what being righteous was. I spent my whole life being good and abhorring the evil and wickedness of the nation and pronouncing judgment on them with my lips. But now I have seen your holiness and your righteousness and I realize that what I thought was my self-righteousness is nothing but uncleanliness in your sight. You see, Isaiah saw the standard of God and realized that even in his self-goodness and his self-righteousness, he missed the mark of God's standard of holiness. He was not repenting of his sins, but he was repenting of his self-righteousness. He was turning away from how he identified himself as being good and being in the right. And he's telling God, my lips are worthless. My deeds are worthless. When I look up to you on your throne and I realize my inadequacy and my inability to meet your standards, for I'm just a man living in the midst of these unclean men. I might be better than them in my sight, but in your sight, I'm just like one of them. That is a hard concept to understand, but it is absolutely essential if we are to appreciate who God is and what the Christian faith is. You see, I know and you know more people who have chosen not to come to Christ because they, are, they feel they are good enough than we know people who have rejected him because they want to live a sinful life. We know more people who have rejected the gospel because they feel they are good enough than we know people who have rejected the gospel because they want to live a sinful life. Goodness can keep people from God. Self-righteousness can keep people from God. Even morality can keep people from God. See, when we look at the morality of God, we realize how inadequate our standard of goodness and righteousness and holiness and love is. You know, when you read the book of Job, when Job questions God's sense of justice and fairness and righteousness, and when God has shown him what is his standard of justice and righteousness, you know, at the end of Job, Job says in chapter 42, verses 5 to 6, I had heard of you, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What was his sin? Nothing other than the fact that the sin of his good nothing other than the fact that his goodness was not God's goodness. When the prophet Habakkuk has a similar encounter with God, he exclaims, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness, rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. You see, God, when he gets a hold of us, he shakes us to the very core of our being to bring out our standard of goodness and righteousness. And he forces us to lay it out in front of him. And then we realize that everything we thought was good and right about us are filthy rags in his sight. You know, that is what Paul came to understand. He laid out his righteousness before God 
and before his law, and he could only exclaim, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? You see, as Christians, we can be so fixated with avoiding sin in not doing the wrong things to realize that our good is not good enough. We have made up our own safe, predictable standards of righteousness that dictate how we live and love, how we choose what to do, but we never put those standards under the scanner to see if they can meet God's standards. We are not concerned with the fact that our holiness is restricted to certain aspects of our life, that our goodness is dependent on the person who is going to receive that and what we can get in return, and that our love is just selfishness, you know, devoting everything we do and we have for the betterment for our families and our friends. See, there are two problems when we live according to our own parameters of self-righteousness. Here's the first problem. The first problem is that you can be good even if you're not a Christian. You can have loving marriages, you can have clean-cut kids, you can have close-knit families, and even more, without a Christian worldview. We know that. In fact, many of our non-Christian neighbors put us to shame in many of those aspects. You know, one of the great tragedies of the modern Christian lifestyle is how so much of our advice and our best practices, as we call it, are just borrowed from modern pop psychology and given a Christian polish or a Christian sheen. See, Christian work habits and Christian relationships and Christian parenting and Christian financial discipline, we have to question how much Christianity is truly there in those things. One of the recent trends in um, Christian social media has been the race of what we call the mommy blogs. I don't know if any of you uh, read them. Um, What are these mommy blogs? They are well-intentioned Christian moms and moms-to-be offering each other and everyone who reads their experience and their advice in bringing up Christian children. But you know, the problem with many of them, and this is not me saying it, this is a Christian author named Gloria Furman. She says that the problem with many of them is that if a Muslim neighbor can follow the same parenting and marriage advice as a Christian woman and still end up being a good Muslim woman, then that advice is not truly Christian. You see? If a Muslim neighbor can follow the same parenting and the same marriage advice as a Christian woman and still end up being a good Muslim, then that advice is not truly Christian. So our neighbors look at us and say, hey, these Christians are not so different from us. What will compel them to consider our faith unless we are able to show them that our goodness and their goodness is nothing before the holiness of God? that our love and their love for family and friends pales in comparison to the sacrificial love of a God who gave his son to die for us. Secondly, God's standards are absolute, but ours can be flexible and bendable to meet our specific context and requirements. You know, we start off by making a little allowance to our criteria of what is holy and what is good and what is right. And at first, it's just a one-off. 
just this one time, then it becomes a precedent, precedent, and then it becomes a practice. And over time, we lose our moorings and we drift. What was once taboo is now tolerated. What was once questionable is now commonplace. We might even call that progress and rejoice in it without realizing that all we are doing is chipping away at our Christian testimony until it becomes indistinguishable from that of the world. This is what uh, D.A. Carson said about this. He says, we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and we convince ourselves that we have been liberated. See, what we urgently need to do is to once again discover God, to find him in the word and to know him more, to see him in his holiness and in his goodness and in his love and in his righteousness, then we will realize who we truly are deep inside. We will recognize the futility of our goodness and our morality and the extent of our failure to live up to the standard of God. And once we have given up our claim to self-righteousness, then God can begin to work in us to make us and mold us into his image bearers, to be his people, to be his representatives to this world. And that's our last point. Then we are transformed by his favor. See, when Isaiah saw God, he's so overcome by his inadequacy that he's in despair. He cries, woe is me. And it is here that God's grace begins to work in the prophet's life. Isaiah does not plead for mercy. He does not make great promises to God in return for deliverance. But a seraph steps forward with a burning coal and he touches that coal to Isaiah's lips. He's pronounced free from guilt and his sins have been atoned for. And that imagery there is profound because the Bible represents God's holiness as a fire. And the fire of God's holiness can be terrifying. You know, we read that our God is a consuming fire. That fire can easily destroy, but it can also cleanse and it can also transform. What does fire do? It transforms matter into energy. And in his grace, the fire of God's holiness does not destroy Isaiah, but it heals him and delivers him from his despair and from his inadequacy. It liberates him from his failure to live up to God's standard. And you notice that the coal comes from the altar. In the Bible, the altar is always tied with redemption and with atonement. And there's no atonement without sacrifice and the shedding of blood. And once again, we think of God who so loved the world that he gave his only son to be the sacrifice for your sins whose blood was shed on your behalf. See, no one has seen God, but Jesus said that if you have seen the Son, then you have seen the Father. We have failed in our own self-righteousness to stand before God on our own merit. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin 
and unrighteousness. That is what 1 John chapter 1 says. We now stand in God's presence not on the basis of our merit, but on the strength of Jesus' righteousness. We have been healed of our sins and liberated from having to meet God's standards in our own strength. Right after Paul says, who can deliver me from this body of death? In Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, he exclaims in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, we have been delivered. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. But there's more than healing and cleansing in the holy presence of God. There's also transformation, a transformation of character and of priorities. If you go on reading the rest of chapter 6, God gives a mission to Isaiah. And do you know what his mission is? Again, I'll paraphrase this. He says, I need a prophet who is willing to go out to the people to preach my message. But here's the kicker. Here's the problem. These people will not hear you or even notice your existence for 30 years. They will despise you. They will ridicule you. They will call you names. You will have no success at all. Your life will be in perpetual danger. This is a ministry that is doomed to fail. What would you say? Here's what Isaiah said. He says, send me. He was willing to go on what we would call a fool's errand because his vision had been changed. His priorities had been changed. He was a failure before God, but now he had been liberated. He had been made holy, and now he has no fear of being a failure in the eyes of the world if it meant that his holy God would be satisfied and glorified. See, when Saul, who was later to become Paul, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, his priorities were changed too. You see, Saul, as we read in Acts, was someone on the up and up in the Jewish community. He was a zealot, a keeper of the faith. No one dared to lay a finger on him. Here's a man who sanctioned the murder of an innocent man without trial. And no one dared to lay a finger off on him. He was the one everyone feared, especially the Christians. Then he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he's given a mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the children of Israel. And when Jesus talks to Ananias, the prophet, he gives him a one-line description of Paul's ministry. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 16, he says, For I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. See, the ravaging zealot of Judaism has been humbled. Now he's tasked with suffering for the name of the Lord. And how he suffers, he's beaten, he's tortured, he's shipwrecked, he's flogged, he's put on a death list, and he can never stay in one place for too long without looking over his shoulder. But he endures all things for the sake of the gospel. He gives freely of himself because his Lord loved him so much and gave fully of himself for Paul's sake. See, the love of Jesus that passes all understanding, the goodness of God that could redeem even Saul, whose only aim in life was to persecute and deny him. That is what changed Saul into Paul. And at the end of his life, when his friends have abandoned him in prison, and when his ministry is dying out, 
he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. But I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, that is the story of Isaiah, and of Paul, and of Peter, and of James, and John, and and Martin Luther, and George Mueller, and D.L. Moody, and Jim Elliott, of countless others who slave away in an anonymity on missions that are destined to fail in the eyes of the world. What about us here today? Now, I want to make it clear, this is not a call to, to missions or to martyrdom. This is a call to realize that we are not good enough. We can never be good enough. We think that we are holy, that we are good, that we are loving. And as evidence, we say, look at my life. Look at my giving. Look at the love which I lavish upon my family and my friends. What more can we do? We need to see the king, the holy one of Israel, seated on the throne. We need to think about his love and his goodness. And then we will realize that all of our self-righteousness, all of our virtues are just dust and ashes. We are all failures in the presence of a holy and righteous God. But there's deliverance and there's grace to be had at his throne. He can cleanse us and he can heal us and he can liberate us and transform us by giving us a new lease of life, a new sense of purpose. And let us not fool ourselves. That means suffering and that means loss and that might look like failure to the world. If we are captured by the holiness of God, the love of God and the goodness of God, And if our lives are invested with that sense of purpose and mission that arises from that experience, then we will always be catching up to others in our jobs. Then we will always, we will never have as much time as we want to lavish on our husband or our wife. Our kids will never have an equal playing field in school. Now the day we acknowledge these things, then we can meaningfully begin to talk about what it means to be a Christian in the workplace, to be a Christian parent, to have a Christian marriage. Then we can begin to realize what it means to be a stranger and sojourner in this world, to be different from everyone else because we have been captured by the love and the goodness and the holiness of an almighty God. See, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that every element of worldly boasting that he had claimed to, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 10, he says, everything that I boast about in this world, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing him, Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne. Have we seen the King, the Holy One? Have we been convicted of our inadequacy? Are we ready to be transformed? Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you because you are so holy, so holy and so awesome and so mighty and powerful. And you're so good and you're so loving to us a lot and we can never understand that. And when we look at you and we see you in your glory, we realize a lot what miserable failures we are in convincing ourselves that we have something of value, something of worth in our own lives, in our own self-righteousness, Lord. And we pray a lot that we will be removed of that delusion a lot and that we will appropriate your holiness and your love and your goodness in our lives a lot, that we are ready a lot to, to go out and to be our messengers, knowing a lot that we might be despised and we might be ridiculed, that we might always be catching up to everybody else. But that is okay because we have found favor in your sight and we have been cleansed of our sin and our unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray a lot that we will live only to make your name known, to, to glorify you and to have you glorified in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our children, and in the lives of our community. Pray, O Lord, that you will give us the strength that is needed, O Lord, to suffer for your sake. And we pray that you will be glorified and that we will see you on your throne. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.